I think there's a lot of organisational projection, I think, in in this work. And that's about fear. And I think to be sort of, forgive me for being a bit Freudian about it, but I think organisations almost act as a bit of a sort of superego, you know, and they sort of become this sort of critical parent who, um, you know, will be very harsh and punishing if you actually get things wrong, you know, and I think that filters down through the organisation. So individual so, um, social workers actually really feel this fear when they work in this field. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today we're delighted to welcome along Diane Wills. Diane is a former probation officer, a social worker and a psychotherapist and she now works independently in a variety of roles offering therapy, consultation, professional supervision, quality assurance and training for individuals and organisations. She's a trustee for Circles Southwest and she also offers support to other practitioners working in the area of risk assessment and management and Diane spent her career specialising in working with men who've committed serious sexual offences and is an author in this field. Away from work, she has four children and runs a lot. So pleased to have you on today, <laughs> Diane. Welcome. Oh, thank you. That, Delighted to be here. That's true, isn't it? You, you run a lot, do you? What, what does running a lot mean? <laughs> I think it's my way of emotionally regulating. I think it's probably healthier than lithium and uh, gets me into the outdoors gets me out of the house um yeah so I run probably I don't know three or four times a week and um it's probably the only thing I've found that kind of really works <laughs> yeah 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 so while the body can still do it I'll, I'll carry on <laughs> exactly yes hmm. well that sounds great so uh, you gave a true psychotherapist's uh, answer when I was I was wondering whether you 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 ran 500 metres or 10 miles so, along Cornish uh, roads. <laughs> Somewhere in between, usually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, can we begin by you perhaps telling us a bit about yourself and how you've come to get to doing the kind of activities that you do, which also has included writing a, a practical guide to working with sex offenders? Yeah, well, we wrote the book. Well, it was one of those things that seemed like a really good idea at the time until we kind of, you know, had to sort of sit down and do it. And um, I, I co-wrote the book with my husband and that was um, that was a learning experience in and of itself. So, um, <laughs> yeah, well, the reason that we, we kind of came to write it is because I, I do a lot of sort of risk assessment consultation quality assurance work for local authorities and realized that um, social workers can feel really de-skilled in this particular area of work and actually they are highly skilled highly well-trained individuals um, they've got loads of assessment skills that are really easily transferable um, so 
I suppose I wanted to make working in this field more comfortable, more accessible, perhaps. Um, also wanted to sort of debunk some tropes, sort of well, sort of, you know, well used tropes that people kind of tend to hold on to and myths and maybe kind of humanise the perpetrators a little bit so that the perpetrators become just like just like you and I um, although obviously they've done dreadful things but actually as human beings they are just like the rest of us and I think that's probably a helpful starting point for professionals to kind of hold on to um, but yeah Andy my husband is definitely the um, I describe him as the brains behind the outfit he's the he's the a uh, real academic in the family but um i suppose i'm the i'm the practitioner i'm i'm the person on the ground that does a lot of the kind of day-to-day -day operational work and you know we would obviously talk about things between us quite a lot we don't always talk talk about work we usually talk about the kids actually but sometimes we talk about work um and we i suppose we realized we had something that we could offer so yeah that's how the book came about thank you so you, you yes. describe yourself as a, a social worker, but also you've got a probation background, haven't you, as well? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I've got a real mixture of, of both. I actually, my substantive initial qualification was as a probation officer. And um, so I sort of worked in public protection, worked in the... Uh, group work, sex offender group work as it was at the time. So um, I was a national trainer, I had a secondment to the Home Office, so I, I, I really, really loved that. But we moved to Scotland um, in 2008, I think, and Scotland obviously have a devolved administration and don't have a probation service. So I sort of became a social worker by default, really. But in doing that, I gained loads of skills so I did work that I hadn't done before so I worked in kind of children and families I worked with disabled children um, I started my kind of practice educator role there where I was sort of supervising other people coming through the social work training um, yeah so it was actually what started as I suppose something that felt a little bit frustrating actually turned into a real opportunity for me but I'd always had social work in, in my background. So prior to being qualified in anything, I'd worked as a, um, well, it would be called a call taker now, I suppose, in my local emergency duty team, social services. So although I wasn't a social worker then, that was an incredible learning opportunity. So it helped me learn loads about legislation. So I understood all this kind of social work legislation I understood, started to understand thresholds. I understood what constituted an emergency in terms of all the various disciplines of social work. Um, I'd also had a little bit of time as a complaints investigator in adult social care. So I've always sort of been betwi betwixt and between social work and probation, really. Well, that's, I, mean, I find that very interesting, Diane, because I originally trained as a social worker. I don't, I don't think I had anywhere near the level of skill or experience that, that, that you've got. Um, and, and the idea of you know, social workers working with people who have committed sexual offences, I think, 
I'd have found terrifying. Um, and, and, and I felt a lot of my colleagues mm. would have been very similar. Why do you think that might be? I think, um, I think social workers have a really hard time. So I think they're, you know, they're wrong. You know, they're, they're professional scapegoats, aren't they? They're wrong if they take action. They're wrong if they don't take action. Um, and I think there's a terrible sort of disabling fear around that. Um, I suppose like every, every discipline, so I, so I sort of have some involvement in um, social work training and every specialism will say that social workers don't get enough training in, you know, whatever their specialism is. So they, they don't get enough training in forensic work, in risk assessment, in, um, you know, perhaps substance use or, you know, so they, they get a sort of generic training. And um, I guess unless people are placed in particular areas where they kind of need to learn um, about this particular topic or they have a particular interest in it, maybe they're likely to, to not feel skilled up enough um, to be able to to sort of do it with the confidence that they would want to. I think I think there's a lot of organisational projection, I think, in in this work. And that's about fear. And I think to be sort of forgive me for being a bit Freudian about it but I think organizations almost act as a bit of a sort of super ego you know and they sort of become this sort of critical parent who um you know will be very harsh and punishing if you actually get things wrong you know and I think that filters down through the organization so individual so um, social workers actually really feel this fear when they work in this field um and that's not surprising at all there's a, as I said before, there's a lot of holding on to sort of tropes and myths. So people kind of get little bits of information that they might have heard somewhere along the line or someone might have said somewhere along the line. And they, they kind of hold on, on to that a little bit. Um, and again, that's, I think that's a sort of fear-based response. That's about um, perhaps not not really allowing for the sort of possibility of change or the possibility that actually things may not be quite as risky as they perhaps look. Um, pe I mean, people's own anxieties, you know, play, play a big part in it as well. You know, people's own experiences play a big part in it. Um, yeah, so, you know, I think, I think there's a mixture of organisational response, but also individual response. And it's really easy, isn't it? It's really easy to other these people that do these dreadful things it's a really easy response and it's a comfortable response to pretend that these people that we work with are really different to you and I or to to anybody else we might meet and I think I think by that very kind of othering that prevents people from really allowing themselves to understand the person that they're working with you mentioned, Diane, the role of the organisation in terms of the, this fear that the organisation is going to be very punitive. I wondered if there's a, a wider um, involvement of society in this in this regard as well, because I was looking at a post on LinkedIn where somebody was um, drawing attention to it. I think I think the plot was probably EastEnders and pointing out how social workers are depicted. And, you know, it does seem as though social workers in the media are generally depicted as being either 
very heavy-handed and removing children willy-nilly or um, otherwise being kind of like totally careless and not bothering and not, not looking after the children. We don't, we don't really see images of social workers doing the job well within the media, do we? You know, whether that be in yeah. films, books, whatever. Absolutely, I, t- I totally agree with you. I think I think there's a lot to be said about the portrayal of social workers and how unhelpful that generally is. And as you say, they're either kind of child snatchers or they're um, pretty ineffective do-gooders, you know, um, and I think that's a really unhelpful portrayal. I think there's a current campaign at the moment, Respect for Social Work, which is working really hard, actually, to... Um, try and influence some of these media portrayals whether they be on soap operas or you know anything any other kind of media um uh platform to sort of try and debunk some of this because you know we we don't get the stories where things have gone really well we only get the stories when things have gone really really badly of course so you know i think i really think they have a, a dreadfully hard time actually probably more so than most other professions in in areas of work where they're working with kind of risk. And do you think social workers reflect very much upon the kind of fear and anxieties that you've just been describing? Um, I think fear is probably not as openly discussed as might be helpful. Um, and I think what happens when we kind of, I suppose all of us, when we form our sort of professional identities, we kind of, you know, in that process, we form our professional defences as well against our own very natural kind of emotional responses to the to the work that we do. And actually, in, in my view, it's probably more helpful to acknowledge those emotional responses and and sort of lean into them as opposed to trying to pretend that they're not there um, or trying you know trying to manage it in a, in a different way and I think it's those I think it's not attending to those emotional responses that that probably contributes to the burnout that we that we tend to see um, in the social work profession and you know this sort of you know, denial of, of these sorts of very, very normal emotional responses, actually, you know, to, to the work and wondering if people, wondering if we've got things right or got things wrong. You know, it's really normal to be kind of quite fearful about that. Um, you know, this fear of getting it wrong and someone becoming harmed is, is a, you know, is a very healthy, normal fear that, that one would have. Um, there's also, you know, lots of other fears associated with that, aren't there? There's there's fears of us being harmed as well, and that might be kind of directly harmed by the people that we work with or the families that we work with, but it also might be organisational harm that might occur if we do get something wrong. Um, and, you know, again, to be um, a little bit Freudian about it, you know, we've all obviously got our own unconscious fears that we're all kind of battling with day in, day out as well, you know. So I, th- I think fear is around a lot more than is um, openly spoken about. Just um, thinking as you're talking, Diane, because uh, you both have a background in social work, but both 
chosen to move on from that and I think one of the conversations that David and I had at the start of um, doing this podcast was about how it's probably not healthy to work in prisons for your entire working career there's probably a, a, a time limit for how long um, it's possible to do that and remain protect your own well-being and I wondered if there's a, a similar shelf life for being a social worker you know is it a job that where the demands are so high that actually it's probably better to develop other skills and, and use your social work experience to contribute to enhancing the profession in other ways rather than performing the role as you know a key role of being a social worker. I think that's really dependent on the individual and probably how well they know themselves and how well they attend to looking after themselves because I think that about myself really about the work that I do I've you know I've been involved in working with um, serious sex sexual offenders for um, I don't know like 20 years or something and it was through the first Covid lockdown when I when I couldn't go to work in in prisons because we weren't allowed to and I kind of had this realization I suppose of how um of how trauma based my life is really um and how unhealthy that could really be and I remember having a discussion about it with my supervisor at the time who was experiencing a sort of similar epiphany um yeah, and I think it's really easy to to not step outside of that sometimes and and see what's going on. But I think I think I think it's healthy to do other things anyway. So I, you know, I would always do a variety of work in 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 my life because that kind of keeps me healthy and interested and um, all of those things. Um, so I think it is healthy to do other things. I think I think you can be a social worker for a long time, but I think it probably takes quite a lot of active work on yourself to maintain those levels of um, self-awareness and resilience and and um, and coping in a really healthy way. Um, there was some research actually I read quite recently. I think it was. Um, Zoe Ash and, and Ben Gray and they did some research about social workers and their own trauma experiences impacting on their work with clients and I think that's definitely an area um, that probably requires a, a, a bit of exploration and that resonates very much with my experience of working with social workers. Thanks, what, what, what are your thoughts, David? Well, yeah, I was just thinking back, really, because uh, um, I, I suppose I worked as a social worker for about uh, 10 years, and uh, reflecting on it now, I don't think I had any particularly traumatic uh, experiences, but I do, I do have people I feel guilty about. I have young people I work with who I feel... I didn't do enough with or um, somehow didn't help get onto the right path and what, what I remember is this was always something carried by myself it wasn't anything I talked about with others there wasn't a forum for talking about those things even though we had supervision supervision was a fairly 
practical, practical based activity. So it's, I was wondering if that's still the case, Diane, or if there's a more kind of um, uh, sensitive kind of supervision within the social work and probation fields now. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably varies. So I'm sure in some places, I wouldn't want to say it doesn't exist because, you know, I'll, I'll get complaints that it very that it does in, in one particular area or something. But as far as I'm aware, it's not universally accessible. Um, and clinical supervision is so is is so helpful. And I, I remember having it as a sort of as a probation officer in my early career um, and we had a clinical supervisor who used to come along and talk to us about not only the, the, the clients that we were working with but also about how we were functioning as a team and what our relationships were like and the dynamics between that and it was such an incredibly helpful cathartic process um, so it's a, it's a real shame that that isn't universally present anymore for people. And of, of course, we, we all know, you know, the cuts to services that I'm sure those kinds of services are seen as very much luxuries rather than essentials. And, you know, line management supervision, of course, has a, has a place. It's about accountability. And of course, that must continue. But it's a really different process, as, as you say, David, to, to sort of clinical supervision. So, yeah, I think I think it would be very useful to, to have that, if at all possible. I'm just sticking with that kind of like the idea about about fear and how people um, make sense of things. I was thinking about the specialist assessments that where expert witnesses are called in to often psychologists for instance, to family courts. And do you think those specialist assessments are always necessary? Because sometimes I've been instructed in cases where I've looked at the files and I've just thought, oh God, the, you know, the, all of the evidence is pointing in one direction. You know, is there really a need for yet another person to get involved with the family and do an assessment? Um, do you think sometimes that those assessments arise because of fear of being held responsible? Absolutely. I, I definitely don't think they're always necessary at all. Um, and when I'm approached by a local authority, when I've kind of um, done a bit of reading and, and thought, actually, the team can probably manage this themselves with a little bit of consultancy. That's something that I always offer. And, you know, from a very practical and ethical point of view, it's, it's, a, it's a cheaper option. It's a lower cost option for them than having a kind of full assessment. So I always offer that. Um, and it, as you say, it means that the clients don't have another person that they have to kind of tell their life history to and all, all of those things. Um, but there is something about the accountability that's held for the risk and and I think that is sometimes projected by organizations onto the external assessor um, and I think uh, yeah I think sometimes organizations don't necessarily want to have all of that accountability so they would rather have an external expert coming along and 
um, saying, you know, what what they think about things. And it's something tangible, isn't it? A report is something tangible that, you know, can be held in a file and can be looked at and can be drawn on. And, you know, recommendations can be kind of pointed to and, you know, leveraged, I suppose. So I understand that, that it's a tangible um, piece of evidence, I suppose, that, that, that organisations tend to like. Um, but, you know, the, the very thing about assessments is they're really only valid for, you know, the time in which you're assessing so you know the nature of people is that they're so sort of dynamic that assessments are actually sort of quite limited really and i've certainly had um experiences uh, where i've written a sort of assessment and then i've had to write addendum after addendum after addendum because something has, has changed in someone's circumstances and actually it I'm absolutely sure the team could manage that with a little bit of consultancy, probably. Um, but also, you know, none of us, none of us like getting savaged in the family court, you know, and I've certainly had my fair share of that. So in some, you know, I, I sort of understand the, the desire to sort of give that experience to someone else as well. Yeah, I suppose just I wouldn't want to put anybody off doing expert witness for family courts because I know it's really, really difficult to get experts in. There aren't enough experts available, are there? And I suppose the my experience of family court work generally is that there's much more a sense of people looking for what is the best interest of the family, um, unlike um, criminal proceedings, for instance. So family court work can be quite rewarding, but as you say, it's a lot of responsibility if you're thinking about what's going to be best for that child and its long-term mm. outcomes. In complex families, how can we manage the competing needs of children and their parents? Because often the parents come with their own huge histories of trauma, don't they? Absolutely. And I think that's really difficult. And I think that's really difficult for organisations to manage because, well, you know, because of resources as, as much as anything else. But, you know, my experience of parents is that you know they need a bit of you know um nurturing too just as just as we all do and often you know their children are in are at, at the attention of social services because of the parents own experiences in their own childhood and their own kind of experiences of trauma um and their own difficulties with being parented so my approach is to always offer try and offer something helpful and supportive even if it's just signposting um for for that for all of the family who you know who i'm sort of involved with um because you know we know that's needed if you're kind of working in silos of course that never works yeah i often think it's very impressive how social workers working with families that see an impact on a child but are also able to hold in mind these awful histories of the parents and I think you know my experience often is that the assessment isn't so much about whether the immediate risk to the child can be managed it's much more about having some empathy for the parents and wanting to find a way to put their life on a different course so it's not going to help the immediate circumstances but whether it might help those parents 
in the future Absolutely. you do see an awful lot of compassion extended for yeah. in you know really really difficult circumstances yeah definitely and definitely and sometimes it's the case that a child does you know have to be removed out of a family for their safety but that doesn't also mean that so- something can happen at the same time for for the parents to to try and and help things become a bit safer you know so absolutely i i agree and i think that's what we don't get what don't tend to see in the media you don't see that huge amounts of compassion being exhibited despite you know in the face of really quite challenging information to make sense of and it'd be nicer to see more of that i think in the in the media rather than these these this kind of like very binary perspectives on on um social workers yes absolutely uh, periodically we see high profile cases where children have been harmed or even killed followed by a serious incident review inquiry how can professionals be confident they're making defensible decisions do you think yeah i think i think defensible decisions are about having access firstly to all the relevant information but also crucially knowing what you what you don't have what information isn't there and how that would impact on any assessment that you make what kind of difference that would make if you had that kind of information so I think that's a real starting point and that you know also means talking to to different agencies and people different agencies who are perhaps involved with the family I think there's also something about using some kind of coherent structure um, to an assessment. I, you know, either an accredited risk assessment tool um, that that people might be trained in, but but even if it is just some kind of framework which which makes sense, and that you're that people are clearly understanding and stating what their methodology is for doing those kinds of assessments um, and for, for themselves understanding about how they tend to approach those assessments and what the limitations of, of that is. And if there are limitations, how can those limitations be managed? Um, and that might be about you know, it might be as simple as kind of quality assurance type work, or it might be having some having another mind to think with, um, or having someone that's um, got some other training that can that can assist with approaching things from a slightly different angle. Um, I, I su- you know, that's I suppose where I have a lot of privilege, really, because I've worked across disciplines. Um, I think I, I tend to approach work from with quite a broad knowledge base, and I think um, I think a lot of professionals are reliant on perhaps one one approach or one kind of methodology that they might that their organisation might have really bought into, and that they they tend to use. Thinking about um, bias as well. In your work how it's manifesting um, and what you're noticing about that and what that might indicate to you either about yourself or about the person that you're assessing um, or about the you know the dynamic between you um, and how that's 
coming across really thinking about language so noticing perhaps when um, your language is perhaps becoming a little bit I don't know I see this quite often but a little bit punitive you know and actually that's that's about your response to to what's happening um, I suppose the biggest one for me and when I'm quality assuring that the the thing that I'm working with people most often on is analysis there's got to be some kind of really quite complex thinking about why people are behaving in the way that they are. There has to be some sort of hypothesizing about that. Um, and that's a bit that I find people feel really worried about doing. They seem to be really worried about saying, this is why I think this has happened um, but for me that's the, that's the absolute key um, of, of m sort of writing a really good report and making really defensible decisions about what you think should happen of course you know no decision is taken in isolation but you, you know your your decision might be a key influencer in what happens and what recommendations that you might make about that and also thinking about that you know how it's 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 not enough to say uh, you know whatever it might be this person you know might be at high risk of harming a child so what what can happen how can someone be helped to change how can someone be supported to be a safer adult not necessarily in that particular family but but generally for their future um, what resources are out there um, to help someone to, to be able to change? And I would say always sort of stating the limitations of assessments. We're not, you know, we haven't, um, you know, we, we can't predict the future. Um, we can only make assessments based on all the information that we have at the time and with the experience and the knowledge that we have at the time and things change. And we learn more. Um, so there are always massive, massive limitations to any kind of decisions that we make. Um, but I think, I think if, if, if people do all of those things, then that's about as defensible as we can get, I think. I think it's really interesting to hear you hanging on the, the idea that there needs to be a, kind of a, a functional, a function to the behaviour. Um, and the circumstances identified because without that really you run the risk don't you of, of it being a, a very biased assessment either because you like the person or you dislike the person um, if it doesn't hang together with some kind of coherence about why things are happening but I wondered as you were talking um, in um, sort of within the justice sector generally there's been a move towards trying to think a bit more about protective factors um, mm. and using assessments that focus on those is that something that that you also see in the work that you do yeah i think um i think i think there are you know people tend to use assessment tools to kind of look at protective factors as well and i, I do see that coming through um but i think i think in my experience that that area could be strengthened because I think it's it's about so if you're identifying protective factors 
how can these be enhanced? How can someone be really, really supported to make those? Usually it's really transformational change that someone needs to go through to, to live as a safe adult. So that, you know, that, that takes resources, it takes courage, it takes, you know, takes commitment to how someone can really be supported to to be different it's you know it's not gonna it's not something that can happen overnight um it's something that takes time and energy and yeah so i think i think it's great that um protective factors are identified much more now um but i think that could still be developed Thank you, Diane. Uh, I was mulling over something that you said earlier, um, and uh, I hope I've remembered it more or less correctly, but I think you were referring to um, the importance of somebody's self-awareness, their self-knowledge, so a probation officer or a social worker's mm. awareness of themselves as being terribly important uh, in relation to the kind of work that they could could. Uh, do so I, I wonder if you could expand a bit upon that and also tell us about the work that you do supporting social workers and probation officers in their uh, professional and personal development does that make sense yeah so I, I yeah completely so as um so in my psychotherapy training um I quite rightly had to have my own personal therapy so I have I've had personal therapy for several years now um and that's been such um a key factor in my knowing myself and developing self-awareness and of course we all do anyway as as kind of life moves on but um doing that with someone else who's trained to do that I think is such a facilitative process and it doesn't happen in every organization so it happens with therapists but it doesn't necessarily happen with social workers it doesn't happen with probation officers it doesn't necessarily happen with forensic psychologists and all of all of these people are kind of doing such such difficult work day in day out um, and when something is offered it sometimes feels a little bit um tokenistic so it can sometimes just be part of a general kind of hr um employment assistance program or, so, or something of the like um and of course you know the therapists who work in those programs are um highly trained highly qualified therapists but um you may not um you may not speak to the same therapist on consecutive sessions, you know, so there, there's a little opportunity to build the real kind of therapeutic relationship that you, that you might have with somebody. So, and in my view, and it's just my view, but when, you know, the fact that we're in this work is, is not a coincidence. So I think thinking about what draws us to this work in the first place is a really helpful start of the process um, and thinking about what Naomi was saying earlier about um, people who work in prisons and how there's a bit of a shelf life to it you know I, I'm always really um, taken with the concept of 
um, prison as a, as a brick mother. I think that was Henri Ray who kind of first coined that phrase. And that really strikes me that it's as true for the staff in prisons as it is for the residents in, in prison. Um, and I think just some exploration about, about what that means for people would be really helpful. Um, you know, and just getting in touch with some of these kind of core emotions and, um, you know, what, what, what goes on for you at, at quite a core level and the triggers, you know, I've, you know, I've lost count of how many times I've been really unexpectedly kind of triggered, you know, when I've been working with somebody and it still happens now, um, happened a few months ago that someone said something and it kind of completely triggered me into um you know a, a, a sort of time in my adolescence when I might you know when I had a sort of similar experience and you know and I think having the therapy just helps us to understand firstly kind of what's happening in the moment and be able to kind of manage that professionally and appropriately um, but also helps us to kind of manage and think really carefully about our responses to the people that we're working with. So, you know, I I work with people sometimes and I feel like, well, if I'm being really honest, sometimes I feel like I want to kick them, you know. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's about me and, you know, that's about my response to being triggered by something they are doing or saying or... You know, and it's it's rarely about the actual kind of offence that they've committed. It's it's usually other stuff. But you know, I I kind of have to go away and and really think about that. Think about what what is blocking me from being from from responding compassionately to this person. You know, and once I've kind of worked it out, once I've kind of really sat and thought about it, and I do really sit and think about it really carefully. I can usually then come back and I can usually then I don't I don't think there's yeah I don't I don't think there's been anybody yet that I haven't been able to find some compassion for you know but I have to do my own processing to be able to get there and I think it's so important and I just think people would be well they'd probably be better practitioners but they'd they'd feel better in themselves and they'd feel healthier and you know be able to feel like they were working with their strengths rather than sort of you know being um feeling under under constant constant pressure all the time yeah that's, that's really interesting i was um taken by your use of the phrase uh, uh, the brick mother um which i hadn't heard before actually Mm. Um, so I'll be looking into it uh, uh, later on, I think. But um, it always struck me working in prisons that there was something containing about that, and I suppose that's what you're referring to. There is something actually containing about the you know, the structures around the uh, prison, which kept you know, everyone inside mostly uh, mostly uh, safe, I think. Anyway, um, yeah. I was also thinking about what you're saying about tokenistic uh, gestures to, uh, because I, I go to a number of places where 
I know people had to work terribly hard during the pandemic and during lockdown because some people had to work all the way through it. Others weren't allowed to go into work and had to work from a distance, which set up all kinds of tensions, I think, um, and all kinds of resolutions. One of the resolutions I frequently come across when I go around visiting places in the country is of an online um, reflective practice group um, and I can see how these came into being but I'm terrified that they may yeah. Yeah, gain some ongoing place in, in practice when I, when I think they're at best a token you know, because you're meeting with yes. could be 10 or 12 different people each time anyway I, I don't know what do you think about that yeah, I mean, I, I, t I tend to agree. I think there is a, you know, there's a place for all of these resources. I was just reading yesterday about um, text therapy and email therapy, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting, you know. And I think, I think there's a place for all of these things, and we, you know, we all should be able to access things in the way that is most comfortable for us. Of course, we don't want to sort of, you know, don't want to put any barriers up to people accessing services, but actually. When people are working for organisations who expect them on a daily basis to manage high levels of trauma day in, day out, manage high levels of risk, actually, I, I think there's a real responsibility there to, to do it properly, actually. Hmm. I, I have to say, I've really changed my mind about online um, support over the last <laughs> couple, of, couple of years. So I was part of a reflective practice group for about eight, well, about about 18 months of the pandemic period and actually it felt very warm and very connected but I think we did all know each other prior to that happening so that probably helped in some way but mm. for me at times that was a real lifeline um, so I think I think when people are very at great distances you know pre prior to the pandemic we would all have to travel down to London and yes. so it would be a whole yes. day and so actually there would always be somebody who couldn't make it because of the, the time commitment but actually I think because we did know each other it, there was a degree of comfort and I have also um, heard people talking about therapy and for very you know for people with a lot of trauma I think actually to be able to do the therapy and be in the safety of your own home and not have to navigate getting home after a painful therapy session can also at times be mm. really useful for people but I think there is something about in person, a live interaction offers a lot more potential, doesn't it, than than looking at a lot of screen on your on your computer. But I think I, I think you're talking think about it offers a more intense experience, perhaps. Also, <clears throat> um, sorry, David. Yeah, go on. Um, yeah, and as you say, you know, I think I think there's a real space for you know I've joined quite a lot of online forums in one way or another since since the pandemic, and as you say, for in terms of distance, I think it's I think it's really helpful, and I've certainly worked with clients who for for their own trauma experiences can't sit in a room with me for fifty minutes, you know, and we have to kind of build up to to that, you know. So I th I think I think that's right, but um, yeah, there's something about being in a room with another person or other people that um, it's a different experience. It's a, it's a different experience that um, 
that makes things go live in a way that online se- online sessions perhaps don't quite so much. And I think uh, the kind of setting that you're talking about, Naomi, is uh, a small group of people who have known each other and been in the group consistently over over a good length of time. So right, I've just um, I've just spoken to you, Naomi, but you don't need to answer. <laughs> Sorry, I I left the door locked so my son couldn't get in the house. <laughs> so I just realised when I heard a hammering at the door. Sorry, David, did you ask me? No, no, I was just saying that the group you were in was a small group with a consistent membership who you knew pretty well. Um, and, and, yes, yes. And, and I think if one has kind of standards, yeah, according to which the group is set up and uh, continues and then that, that's a different matter really so just just to move on a bit what is it about the uh, system do you think that hinders social workers and probation officers from using their skills yeah more effectively. I remember at the beginning of our conversation you were saying how they had this kind of large, you know, large number of mm. skills and experience. So what, what, what factors within the system hinder their, their use? I think, um, well, I think we've already spoken a bit about fear. So I think, I think that that's, that's one of the issues. I think there's just generally um, a bit less autonomy um, for professionals than perhaps there once was. Um, I, yeah, that that struck me very much last time I did any kind of agency work um, of, of just how much um, less able practitioners were to, to, to work in a way that's, that... Um, suited them I suppose and felt most most comfortable for them rather than a very prescribed way of doing things I think um I don't know and I, I think there's something about critical thinking that is not necessarily actually encouraged um and I know that's not necessarily um a, a popular thing to say <laughs> But I think, I think sometimes what happens is um, organisations sort of buy into particular models and methodologies um, and ways, ways of doing things, really. Um, and in my view, they should always be a help. You know, they should always be an aid to, to thinking things through. But I think sometimes in the way in which things are implemented they sort of become a bit of a hindrance rather than a help. And that's for all sorts of reasons, I think. So I, th- I think people aren't necessarily encouraged to really think critically about the situation that they're faced with. Um, and, and I think that's a shame because that's what they get trained to do. <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what practitioners get trained to do. But I think there's something about organisations which almost kind of um dilutes that process a little bit yeah we've spoken a lot about 
fear, Diane, but I'm, I'm conscious of the fact we previously had on um, Professor Rob Canton, um, who spoke quite, he's written quite extensively about disgust, and mm, speaking yeah. about disgust, and thinking about your work, I imagine that disgust is another emotion that probably comes up fairly, fairly frequently, and wondered whether that gets spoken about much. Yeah, and I think it probably, again, isn't quite so much. And I'm, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I, I'm quite open about, about that, that. And, you know, when I, when I read, when I first um, allocated a um, person to work with, and I read through their case files as, as, you know, is the first thing that, that we do, um, I, I feel the normal and natural responses that that everybody feels you know that the the disgust and the outrage and you know the the anger and all of those things about how someone could do something so dreadful and you know and and it's it's just really normal isn't it to to feel all of those things so that, you know there are sort of core emotional responses and and i think it's I think it's healthy to acknowledge that they are present and that, you know, and I think the way people can, can be assisted with that is through kind of really good supervision and team support. Um, and usually what happens for me is once I kind of get in a room with a person and they're no longer a case file, but they're a human being in front of me, some of that stuff becomes much more easy to understand and, and to manage. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's right. I think as professionals, we're perhaps I don't, I, I don't know if expected is the right word, but there's something about professional defensiveness that allows us to perhaps try and think that we're not affected in the same way that anybody on the street would be affected by reading some of the things that we have to read or. Um, knowing what we know you know but of course we are you know we are we are all affected in in that way and actually when we stop being affected in that way that's perhaps when we really need to think about what we're doing um. absolutely I was I was wondering whether I suppose there's an expectation that we don't act in it we don't act out our disgust and I wonder whether talking about disgust might feel frightening because it might feel like it, t it takes us a step towards mm. acting disgusted when in fact actually if we were talking about our disgust it would you know I think usually when people behave in a way that's just that's because they're disgusted it's because they're not able to have a, com a conversation and be conscious of, of what's driving them yeah absolutely I think that's a really good point I think I think that's it and you know as you say talking about it and actually kind of so you know the phrase I use is sort of leaning into it, leaning into it a bit, just you know working with it, you know, and actually acknowledging that you know that it's there is, is is much healthier than pretending that it isn't. Absolutely. So Diane, we've, we're coming to the end of the interview, and you've specialised in working in an area that many people shy away from. Have you taken any other steps to protect your well-being beyond personal therapy and running and keeping fit? <laughs> um, well, it's worked so far. <laughs> I suppose. Um, I think I just recognise that I probably do this work 
as a way of making sense of my own experiences and my own life and my own kind of dark side, if you like, my own kind of, um, you know, shadow, I suppose. And I think that's okay because I think I know it's there. Um, and I think I acknowledge it regularly. Um, I think I've got a really balanced life. Um, so in terms of work, um, just you know just the sort of personality type I am I tend to wear a slightly different hat on different days so I do lots of different things um so that keeps me healthy I think I've clearly got a really busy family life as well so um definitely that that helps I've got really 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 great friends as well so I, I really look after myself I think and I surround myself I don't think I've got you know I've got no friends who are not just the most positive and supportive and wonderful human beings so I think I've really kind of cultivated that support network um, and I think the running it's not so much the running it's more like the being outdoors so um, there is something about having a bit of perspective and knowing that there is something bigger than myself um, that grounds me, I think. Um, yeah, so I think having that sense of perspective really helps. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I did wonder um, whether geography, geography and the outdoors played a part, like, uh, thinking about you living in Cornwall and yes. having lived in Scotland. And we've we've had Dominique Moran talk about, on the podcast before, talking about green space, and yeah. we recently had Joe Sabian on talking about blue space. Blue space, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, so I, I did wonder whether, you know, being in, engaged with the outdoors and the all that that inspires, whether whether that also plays, a, you know, helps helps you with your well-being. Yeah, massively. My favourite word um, is susurration, which is the, the, the breeze in the, the noise the trees make when the breeze is in their leaves. And um, that that is my absolute thing. You know, that's that's where I go. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big one for the trees. definitely. <laughs> that's really lovely. Lovely answer, Diane. Thank you. Thanks very much for today. It's been a great conversation. Yeah pleasure thank you very much for having me it's been lovely thanks a lot great to meet you